Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 156. know that America is going in the wrong direction, both politically, morally, and culturally. We know that under the leadership of Pope Francis and the U.S. hierarchy, our beloved Catholic Church is headed in the wrong direction. But what about those of us Catholics who consider ourselves devoted practitioners of Catholicism? Well, I suppose that's something every individual Catholic has to decide for himself. Hopefully, by the end of this episode, you'll be able to make an objective determination about that. Did you know that statistics from Kara say that 70% of Catholics get 100% of their Catholic information from your parish Sunday bulletin? After my pastor mentioned to me that he'd like to find a way to catechize the whole parish without setting up a class, this little statistic inspired an idea. With my pastor's permission, I began writing a bulletin insert called What We Believe, Why We Believe It. Since it's merely inserted into the bulletin, it's intrusive, meaning that parishioners have to remove it to read the bulletin. In the process, they read this little thumbnail catechism lesson, and they let Father know that they love them. You see, I teach the faith with stories, anecdotes, and parables. They're not your typically boring catechesis. And best of all, I teach why we're supposed to believe the Church's teachings, which affirms your parishioners in their faith. As a convert and consecrated member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, I teach the entire faith, even tackling the really tough moral issues. 
You can learn more by watching an 11-minute video by clicking the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. So you can try it without risk, you can get it for three months. You can even download three samples while you're on the page with the video. This is ideal for good priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without having to give the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. It just requires 11 minutes of your time. Before I delve into whether we're headed in the right or wrong direction, there are a couple of things I want to mention. First, Advent and Christmas are typically very busy times for almost all Americans. Everyone's busyness has wreaked havoc on my production schedule. I've been trying to build on the momentum of the Enough is Enough prayer rally in Baltimore last November, which I've hopefully managed to do with guests like Joe Gallagher and Steve Brady. I'd planned on having other guests on the show, aiming toward that end, during November and December, but things for people became busy. I'd like to mention that one of the guests was to be Michael Hitchborn of the Lepanto Institute, but the day Michael was to be interviewed by me, his father had to be hospitalized with COVID. Michael's father died a few days later. So please, pray for the repose of his soul. I'm trying to get Michael rescheduled to come back on the show now. We're going to renew our efforts to build the momentum of the Enough is Enough prayer rally in January. Among the guests we're going to have are Michael Vorse and Joe Matt, publisher of The Wander. You won't want to miss anything from the Cantankerous Catholic in January. The second thing I want to mention is something about this and some previous episodes. The other day I looked at the numbers on episode analytics. It seems that most of you only listen to the main topic of each episode, the first part. I'd really appreciate it if you'd make a change of that, at least for a few weeks. This is the ninth week that the Catholic Boot Camp segment has focused on the topic of communion in the hand. I realize that for many of you this is a boring or even useless or at least minor topic. Most of you receive communion in the hand and have done so your entire lives. That's all you've ever known or been taught. I get it. But if you haven't been listening to Simon Rafe make his presentations about this on the Catholic Boot Camp segment, I want to inform you that communion in the hand is evil because it's an abuse of Jesus in the Most Holy Eucharist. So if you haven't been listening to the Catholic Boot Camp segment, please listen to it in this episode. If you have time, go back and listen to it in the previous eight episodes. It definitely has an impact on where you spend eternity. Now let's get to our main topic. I've been saving this since last April. I wanted to wait until the appropriate time. Part of building on the momentum created by the Enough is Enough prayer rally in Baltimore isn't just standing up to the bishops and their criminal empire known as the USCCB, but it's also being courageous enough to stand up and confront some of their victims. I'm not talking about the victims of sexual abuse, but rather the victims we call Catholics in the pew. 
Last April, Michael Vorce put out a Vortex titled Wrong Direction. Michael rarely goes over 10 minutes in his Vortexes due to production time, I'm sure. For those of you who heard it and gave deeper thought to it later in that 7-minute Vortex, Michael was really giving us a call to action. We'll talk about the details of this call to action after we listen to Michael. Let's listen. Earlier this month, a pretty impactful author died at 92 years old, but his death went largely unnoticed. His name was John Naisbitt, and in 1982, he published a book that changed the way business was conducted in many parts of the world. It was called Megatrends, 10 New Directions Transforming Our Lives. He'd researched the book for nearly a decade, and in it, he traced giant themes, megatrends, of cultural and attitudinal changes that Wall Street sat up and paid attention to. Naisbitt's insights, his notion that the direction of the world collectively can be discerned by tracing certain major barometers, may seem somewhat passe now, or even obvious, but in 1982, it was groundbreaking. Still, the idea of trying to look into the future based on giant trends or megatrends is lost on a large number of people. So when a study or a poll or some intense research is published demonstrating what amounts to a megatrend, it really is surprising how few people actually take note. Here are two societal megatrends, for example, both pointing in the same direction and for believing Catholics and men of goodwill that direction is the wrong direction. The first is the drop-off in organized religion across the board. A couple of weeks ago, Gallup Polling published a comprehensive study which concluded the practice of religion across the board has now sunk to below 50% in America. Specifically, only 47% of Americans had official membership in a church, a temple, or a mosque. And to show the trend, specifically the mega trend, just two years earlier in 2018, membership stood at 50%. And that was down from 70% just 20 years earlier in 1999. In 1937, the first year the question was polled, 73% said they belonged to a church, a temple, or a mosque. And it stayed there pretty much the same for roughly 60 years until 1999, and it began to drop again to 70%. So for 62 years, about three-quarters of Americans claimed religious membership. Then, over just 20 years, it plummeted to a minority of less than half. That is the very definition of a megatrend, a huge shift with enormous impact. The other megatrend we see at play comes to us as we dig down into the 2020 U.S. Census numbers. Laying aside the political power shift to a few GOP states, the main concern is the reduction in population growth. It's at its lowest since the Great Depression. Various analysts are pointing to two main causes, fewer births and diminishing legal immigration. Another interesting point that emerged is there are more Americans right now over 80 than there are under two. That is the heart of the notion of a megatrend, a societal movement so pronounced and demonstrable that it becomes predictive. So as we look out across America, we see an aging country 
which is rejecting God more and more with each passing generation. That is one giant collective megatrend. So what does this mean now for Catholics? It means that the environment for exercising our faith, for evangelizing, is becoming more hostile. That's culturally speaking, but it also means the electorate, however divided, will be more and more sympathetic to anti-God, anti-religious legislation. It won't be like an overt attack against God as God in himself, but it will be legislation decidedly anti-religious, which means aimed at people who are believers. Obama infamously declared back in 2006, America is no longer just a Christian nation. He was actually correct, regardless of how many took it as an insult. It probably was also said as a type of insult, but whether he meant it or not, it was spot on, especially the last item that he included. He said, whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, and a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. That was in 2006. Now, in 2021, a generation later, the percentage of Americans who identify as having no religious affiliation has jumped to the top of the pile, eclipsing Catholics and evangelicals. There are many ways to go at all of this information. We can and should ask what went wrong here, but we also have to ask what here from now. Some things we will not be able to control. Some of the effects of all of this is already in the pipeline, and it's going to have to pass through, and we're going to have to live through it. But it should also serve as a giant wake-up call that individual Catholics need to start turning things around in their own orbit. While megatrends make mega headlines and point to powerful forces, they did not emerge from nowhere. They are the culmination of many forces at play, which causes certain trends to then be set in motion. If the bad trends are not defeated early on, well, they gather steam. However, it's also the case that good trends can be produced, but it will always be an uphill battle. That reality doesn't excuse us, however, from working to produce good trends. It just makes us approach the reality of it from a sober point of view. Ultimately, world trends impact eternal salvation, and that's what we care about, as we can see with the rise and now the dominance of the irreligious. We can no longer, as Catholics, live on the fumes of prior centuries and generations because even the fumes are almost gone. We need to understand where we are, how we got here, and what we need to do now. If that seems daunting, well, consider what the apostles saw when they stared into the depth of the Roman Empire. And yet, you have your faith because they did exactly what had to be done. This is now our time, and the sooner we embrace this, the sooner we can begin a Catholic megatrend. That's what our blessed Lord meant when he commanded we go out and baptize all nations. Michael's call to action is really multifaceted, and not everyone is equipped to tackle all those facets. Men like Michael, Terry Barber, Jesse Romero, and yours truly have been tackling all the facets for years because necessity has forced our hands from over 15 to 30 years of working in the trenches, so to speak, with the very people included in those facets. 
Those facets are those claiming to be Catholic but never attend Mass, men not fulfilling their duties as Catholic men, fathers, and husbands, and Americans like Trump. I'll explain that last one shortly. Let's start with those claiming to be Catholic but never attend Mass. They're victims. They've never been taught. We're dealing with both men and women here, but the focus must be on the men. The reasons why men aren't interested in attending Mass are several. First, the hierarchy haven't given men any reason to attend Mass. Radical feminism and the Lavender Mafia have so infiltrated the church that men aren't comfortable being themselves, feeling like fish out of water. Some parishes are just plain volatile toward men, at least men who are the least bit masculine. Men don't feel welcome in these parishes. For this group, our obligations to them are to first help them realize that the Catholic religion is very manly, convincing them that we have to bind together as a group of men to make our parishes manly again, and to make both the clerical and lay leadership so uncomfortable that they feel they have no choice but to accede to our demands of taking the focus off of women running the church and placing it back in the hands of men. In order to show men the Catholic faith as a masculine faith is to introduce them to Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, instead of the warm, fuzzy Jesus they've been exposed to for the last 60 years. Jesus was a warrior while on earth, and I can cite incident after incident in the Gospels where he was the very manly warrior. Except one time in the temple, he was never violent, but violence isn't required to be a courageous manly warrior. Only exuding manly Catholic virtues is required. Part of retaking the individual parish churches from radical feminists and the Lavender Mafia is to convince those same men that they have to begin living as genuine Catholic men, fathers, and husbands. The handbook of instruction for this is found in reading Ephesians 5 and 6 and reading 1 Peter 3. If men will begin asserting in their lives and families without compromise what Peter and Paul call for in these epistles, wives and children will fall in line. Remember, men, your wives will never respect a weak-spined man who won't assert his God-given role as husband and father, and your children certainly have no reason to respect you. As you reach out to men about being men in the Catholic Church, particularly in your own parish, you need to lead these men to form an informal group of Catholic men. You need to form a group of men who regularly meet for coffee, beer, or bourbon while presenting to them the various ways Jesus and the church are masculine. They've been indoctrinated to wimpy ways for 60 years. Now it's time to re-indoctrinate them to genuine Catholic masculinity. None of what I'm telling you is misogynistic. This has absolutely nothing to do with having anything against women. It has to do with assertively reassuming your rightful role in the church. If you want change in the church, the sort of change that actually embraces men and their masculinity, you have to begin in your local parish. The bishop can't touch or otherwise do anything about parish dynamics, and if the priest is one of those girly boy types, he'll be too afraid to buck a bunch of men who are being manly men. You may even find that your priest has actually been secretly hoping for the sort of revolution you're bringing about. 
I know several priests in my locale who'd be happy as hell to see such a thing happen. Now, a big part of this means that you men have to step up and assume the liturgical roles that have been wrongly stolen by women. Except for being married, women don't have any business whatsoever being anywhere near the altar during liturgy. There need to be enough of you men volunteer that there's no excuse for women to be readers or assisting father at the altar. Once there are enough of you being responsible in assuming and consistently engaging in these responsibilities, it's time to assist that only men, including altar boys, participate as readers, bearers of the gifts, and serving father during Mass. And if you've been listening to the Catholic boot camp, you know it's also time to begin trying to abolish extraordinary lay ministers of the Holy Eucharist. No lay person has any business whatsoever touching the sacred body of Christ. That's reserved to those in possession of holy orders. Now, the final group of people who have to be saved from themselves are typical Trump supporters. Trump and his supporters have made a big deal about an America under God, which is a good thing. The problem is they apparently only do it to seem patriotic. Trump doesn't go to church, and neither do most of his supporters. I hate to say it, but they're hypocrites. It's up to us, mostly us Catholic men, to give people reasons for returning to church. Don't tell me that it can't be done. I know damn well that it can because I've been doing it for 30 years. And when I get people to go back to church, more often than not, it's the Catholic church. It can be done. It just takes more effort on your part than you've ever made. 61% of you listeners are men, and each of you know a whole lot of other men who are just like you. It's up to you to start the ball rolling. You'll find that once the ball begins to roll, it'll pick up momentum and roll all by itself. If you need to reach out to me to help or advise you, by all means do so. After all, we're trying to save the Catholic Church and our own souls. But it all starts with this. Be a man. Have you ever really explored the Cantankerous Catholic website? Did you know that I have six of my own books available there? Did you know that I have t-shirts, sweatshirts, and coffee mugs available? You can accomplish three things when you buy some of my swag. Your purchase helps to support this apostolate, you'll have something to display that says you're a six-pack warrior, and you'll look just plain cool. How many Catholic apostolates can make you look cool? Click on the Joe's Stuff tab at cantankerouscatholic.com today. Let the world know you're a cool six-pack warrior. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the Washington Post. 
Cynthia Millen has been an official with USA Swimming for 30 years, but she resigned because of the continued dominance of Leah Thomas, a trans swimmer from the University of Pennsylvania who was born a male but competes as a woman. Millen said, I told my fellow officials that I can no longer participate in a sport which allows biological men to compete against women. Everything fair about swimming is being destroyed. Millen said if she were officiating at a woman's meet, she would rule Thomas ineligible. That's what I'm talking about. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to Fox News. Pretender Biden and his wife participated in a Santa Tracker event and took calls from the audience. One caller ended his family's call by saying, Let's go, Brandon, a phrase used as a non-vulgar disparagement of Biden. NBC said the Oregon father used a right-wing slur, and ABC called it a vulgar insult. The Atlantic's Ron Brownstein called it a form of insurrection. This contrasts with mainstream media excusing or promoting people to publicly yelling the F-word at President Trump. Amen. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick number three. Hats off to Fox News. Sarah Weddington, who argued in favor of legal abortion in the case of Roe v. Wade, died on Sunday at the age of 76. She represented Norma McCorvey in the landmark case. McCorvey later converted to the pro-life cause as well as Catholicism, but Weddington maintained her support for abortion. That makes me sad. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick number two. Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Republican-led states will restrict access to abortion pills via telehealth appointments despite a move by the FDA to lift restrictions on prescribing the drugs. Five states have explicitly banned telehealth visits to prescribe abortion medication. Arkansas, Arizona, Missouri, Louisiana, and West Virginia. An additional 15 states have mandated that a physician be present when a patient obtains and uses an abortion drug, effectively banning the use of telemedicine for prescribing and dispensing it. That's awesome, dude! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News News Pick number one. Hats off to the Daily Wire. Major cities across the country have been hit by a rash of organized looting, which now costs retailers about $65 billion a year. The combination of COVID restrictions and weak-on-crime policies are causing retail stores to close many locations. In November, CVS announced that it will close around 900 retail locations over the next three years. Rite Aid announced this week that they will close 63 stores. Walgreens is closing five locations in San Francisco alone. Despicable! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I am hard, but I am fair! It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp 
with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. This week, Simon Rafe will explain how communion in the hand is a consequence of defiance of the Pope. In other words, it was agents of darkness in the USCCB, then known as the NCCB, who tricked you and millions of other Catholics into no longer believing in the real presence and to regularly engage in the evil of receiving communion in the hand. Let's listen to Simon. The world is full of people who know exactly what the problem is, where it went wrong, and how it could have been fixed. Monday morning quarterbacks who say the Seahawks should never have passed. Armchair generals who point out you should never start a land war in Asia. And pew-sitting popes who maintain that if the Holy Father wanted to stop communion in the hand, he should have just said so. There are two major problems with this theory. The first is that hindsight is always 2020. When we, Monday morning quarterbacks, talk about the game around the water cooler, we're doing so with the benefit of having seen how things played out. We see the actions taken didn't work, and so we presume different actions would have worked better, or at least not as badly. But we don't know that, and more importantly, we might not have known that at the time if the decisions were ours to make. It's very easy to point out a failure and declare a different decision would have resulted in success when there is no way to prove that because the moment has passed. There's a reason NFL franchises aren't scouting for coaches in sports bars, is what I'm saying. The second problem with this theory, specifically as it applies to the Holy Father, is that while the Pope is the head of the church, his actual influence is curtailed and limited by many factors. Often the Pope simply doesn't get all the information. People do not tell him everything. And he is so busy with the administration of the largest, most diverse, and most geographically dispersed organization in human history, he has no way of knowing he's not getting the full picture. In other cases, the Pope, like any leader of a large organization, such as the head of a government or the CEO of a corporation, relies on those around him to make day-to-day decisions. His authority has been delegated. Sometimes it's delegated to, or he is relying on people who are lazy, ignorant, or even agents of darkness. And sometimes, too often, as it turns out, the Pope is simply defied. He can be well aware of what's going on, have made his decision and declared it himself, and it is either ignored or dismissed by those who are supposed to put it into action. There's a story of an encounter in Rome between the previous Holy Father, Benedict XVI, and a visitor to his private office. This was before Benedict resigned, and it's possible this story reveals something about why Benedict thought it best to abdicate. The visitor asked the Pope why he didn't do something about the abuses in the church, why he didn't issue orders to stop them, to change the direction of the bark of Peter. Benedict pointed at the threshold of his office and said, My authority ends there. Now, if you find the story hard to believe, remember what happened with his motu proprio Sumorum Pontificum permitting and encouraging the Tridentine Mass. The Pope's instructions were being ignored, not with public defiance, of course, but politely, privately, behind the scenes. This was the case, although not politely and certainly not privately, for Pope Paul VI. Famously, his landmark encyclical Humane Vitae confirming the Church's perennial teaching on the evils of contraception was ignored and even explicitly rejected, most notably by the Canadian bishops in their treacherous Winnipeg Statement. Now, 
Nobody would say Paul VI did not try to fight contraception, yet it is conventional wisdom to say he did not try to prevent communion in the hand, or even allowed and encouraged it. This simply isn't true. Paul VI did try to stop communion in the hand, working diligently throughout the 1960s, but he failed miserably. This is because the bishops of the Netherlands and Germany, witting or unwitting agents of darkness, simply did not obey the Holy Father. And this disobedience and defiance is why the abuse continues to this day. The first document to come out of Vatican II was Sacrosanctum Concilium in 1962. It tackled the most visible aspect of the church, her liturgy. Most people are unfamiliar with this document's actual contents, instead relying on what other people say or imply it contains. There is, of course, a huge difference between the actual words of Sacrosanctum Concilium, what it's specifically called for, and the so-called Spirit of Vatican II. The Spirit of Vatican II, a false spirit, certainly not the Holy Spirit of the Blessed Trinity, would have you believe the Second Vatican Council called for liturgy in the vernacular rather than Latin. Masses said facing the people rather than facing God, altar girls, guitar mass, lay ministers for Holy Communion, and of course, communion in the hand. None of this is true. Sacrosanctum Concilium, as we've shown when dealing with previous cases, called for a renewal of the liturgy, not a wholesale change. It spoke in broad terms, not specifics. And so, in 1964, Paul VI established the Council for the Implementation of the Constitution on the Liturgy. He appointed Archbishop Annabel Bugnini as secretary of the Concilium, as this council was known. It was Benigni and his team who were responsible for carrying out the Pope's wishes when it came to putting the abstract suggestions of Sacrosanctum Concilium into concrete practice in the liturgy. Now, as we've already mentioned, in the 1960s, communion in the hand started as an abuse in northern European countries, Holland, Belgium, Germany, and France. There was no permission for it, no church law allowed it. The practice was influenced strongly by the heretical teachings expressed in the so-called Dutch Catechism of 1966, although this was merely the date of publication. It was clear the beliefs, denial of the real presence, the rejection of the distinctiveness of the sacramental priesthood, and more, had been bubbling under the surface like pus in an abscess for years or decades before. And so it was. On October 12, 1965, the Concilium wrote to Bernardus Cardinal Alfring, head of the Conference of Bishops in the Netherlands, saying, the traditional way of distributing communion is to be maintained. The Holy Father does not think it proper that the sacred host be distributed in the hand and then received by the faithful themselves in one or other fashion. And therefore, he urgently asked the conference to issue appropriate regulations so that the traditional way of receiving communion may be everywhere restored. In his biographical book, The Reform of the Liturgy, Archbishop Bonini recalls his experiences working in the Vatican for over a quarter of a century. In there, he records with somewhat dry understatement, these and other reminders did not have any effect. Now, for all of you armchair quarterbacks keeping track of the play calls, that's twice the Pope has tried to drive. The apostolic exhortation Mysterium Fidei was a universal call to reverence for the Eucharist, and this letter was a specific instruction to the bishops in the middle of the mess. Two attempts to push the ball downfield, and two times he's got stopped. One more, he's gonna have to drop back and punt. But there's a difference between what happens on the gridiron and what was happening in the Low Countries on any given Sunday. A football coach gets stopped by the opposing team. Paul VI's efforts were hampered by his own team, or at least what was supposed to be his own team. The Dutch bishops, men like Cardinal Leo Suens and Bernardus Alfrink, told Rome they couldn't stop communion in the hand in their diocese, that they weren't able to. More likely, they didn't want to. A bishop has control over his own diocese. That's where the Pope puts him in charge. There are many ways they could have done it. Now, 
I'm not about to play backseat bishop and tell you exactly what they should have done, but I'm definitely going to tell you they should have done something. And that's the thing. The smoking gun here isn't something that was said or done or written. It's that nothing was said or done or written. The Pope made a couple of calls. They might have worked, but we'll never know because the men charged with running the plays, the bishops, simply ignored him. They didn't write their own letters. They didn't issue their own instructions. They simply said, couldn't be done. Left it at that. Well, they didn't leave it at that, unfortunately. Swenens and Alfred knew communion in the hand was forbidden, that it was illegal according to church law. Rather than obey the Pope's clear instructions, they asked for an indult, that is, a special permission exempting them from the law to distribute communion in the hand. This demonstrates incredible chutzpah on the part of the Dutch bishops. Chutzpah can be defined as unbelievable boldness, temerity, gall, or cheek, like when a man on trial for killing both his parents asks the court for clemency because he's an orphan. After all, the law was the law, and by requesting an exemption, the Dutch bishops admitted they were aware of it. The Pope had already told them to stop communion in the hand. It was ludicrously bold to ask for permission. But asked they did, and they kept on asking repeatedly, time and again, over the next few years. On May the 8th, 1968, three years after telling the hierarchy of the Netherlands to stop communion in the hand, Rome again said no. This time, via the sacred congregation of rites with the words, non expedere, in English. It is not expedient. Still, the dissident bishops, the agents of darkness, wouldn't let up. They continued with their requests. Finally, on June 3rd, 1968, the Vatican Secretary of State wrote to the Episcopal Conference of the Netherlands, saying, His Holiness, in effect, considers that the bishops must be reminded of their responsibility so that they may prevent, with opportune norms, the inconveniences and moderate the indiscriminate spread of this practice, of itself not contrary to doctrine, but in practice, very disputable and dangerous. Paul VI has tried to move this ball downfield for three years and it's got nowhere. He tells the kicker to warm up on the sidelines. He's thinking about punting. Shortly after the Secretary of State wrote to the Dutch bishops, Paul VI briefly gave in. He issued two indults permitting communion in the hand on June 27th for Germany and July 3rd for Belgium. Now we can't be sure why he did so. Popes are only human, so perhaps it was a moment of weakness. Certainly, it seemed as if the abuse could not be stopped. He'd been trying for three years, after all. Perhaps he thought three points was better than nothing, that allowing this abuse in one small area would prevent it from spreading elsewhere. But then, almost out of the blue, he benches the kicker. On July 25th, he orders Bonini to tell the Dutch and German bishops to suspend the publication and application of the indult. What this does is remove any special permission for communion in the hand. Without the indult, distributing the Eucharist in any manner other than on the tongue would be breaking the law. And so now Paul VI calls a timeout. He wants to huddle with his team and decide the best course of action here. On July 30th, five days after the suspension of the indult, the concilium recommended, the concilium should, at the bidding of the Holy Father, send a letter to all the presidents of the Episcopal Conferences with an extended state of the question. Each Episcopal Conference should discuss the problem and come to a decision by a free and secret vote, the results of which so it should be sent back to the Concilium. In October, the Concilium met with the secretaries of the congregations involved. There, they described the problem of communion in the hand. Their practice has started and is difficult to stop. The dangers, weakening of worship of the Eucharist, danger of profanations yielding to a practice imposed from below. The play was clear. The views of the Episcopal Conferences should be solicited to help the Vatican better understand and more effectively address the problem of communion in the hand. 
The Concilium drafted a letter sent on October 29th to all 2,150 Latin Rite bishops. The letter referred to the manner of reception of the Eucharist as one of the Vatican's most sensitive and pressing concerns and said the Holy Father was opposed to communion in the hand. Of course, the main issue was any possible indult and the reasons for opposing it. The letter read in part, This new practice introduced here and there is the work of a small number of priests and laypeople who are trying to impose their viewpoint on others and force the hand of those in authority. To approve the practice will be to encourage these persons who are never satisfied with the laws of the church. The word never here is interesting. The letter wasn't just the work of the Concilium. Paul VI personally corrected and annotated it. Bonini commented in his memoirs saying, the variations introduced by the Pope indicate the care and interest with which he had been following the whole matter. Originally, the word not was used, but before the letter was sent out, the word was changed from not to never. Now, that seemingly minor change is a stinging rebuke to the soi-disant reformers in Germany and the Low Countries, revealing Paul VI saw them in much the same way as their predecessors over 400 years earlier, the leaders of the Protestant revolt. He saw them not as people with some honestly held differences of opinion, but dissidents fundamentally opposed to the authentic Catholic Church. But the letter didn't merely oppose communion in the hand because it was in defiance of existing laws. The Concilium and the Pope said, The greatest thing to be feared is a lessening of respect for worship of the Eucharist, and raised the specific problem of loss of particles of the Eucharist. One must ask with anxiety whether the fragments of consecrated bread will always be gathered up and consumed with the full respect they deserve, if even now, when a communion plate is used, it is so easy for fragments to fall and to scatter, what will it be when the particle is placed in the hands of the faithful, of whom not all have the sensitivity and attention for gathering them up promptly? Now, the risk of profanation of the Eucharist through accident or carelessness is a major issue. We're going to talk specifically about it later on with a sobering and even horrifying experiment, which will demonstrate without a shadow of a doubt that communion in the hand is dangerous and ill-advised. But in brief, this is a huge issue. If we believe, as the church teaches, that each fragment, each particle, each crumb or drop of the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, whole and entire, body, blood, soul, and divinity, then all steps must be taken to preserve and protect it, to prevent it from being scattered carelessly to the floor, to be trodden underfoot, swept away, or vacuumed up. Paul VI recognized communion on the tongue, even with patterns and priests following precise, exacting rubrics designed to minimize it, still had an attendant loss of particles. How much worse would communion in the untrained hands of the laity be? The final concern the letter expressed was almost prescient. By yielding easily on this point, there is danger that the audacity of overdaring reformers will be directed to other areas, which will bring irreparable harm to Eucharistic faith and worship. In the nearly five decades since Rome gave in and allowed communion in the hand, we've seen all manner of changes. Tabernacles moved into corners, altars turned round, allegions of ministers of every kind and of all kinds of abuse in the mass. With our 2020 hindsight, it's easy to say the Pope wasn't exaggerating one jot. Paul VI ordered a ballot enclosed with a letter asking three questions. Do you think that attention should be paid to the desire that, over and above the traditional manner, the right of receiving Holy Communion on the hand should be admitted? Is it your wish that this new right be first tried in small communities with the consent of the bishop? And do you think that the faithful will receive this new right gladly after a proper catechetical preparation? Benigni records that Paul VI wanted the ballot to be secret so that bishops could express their views privately and without pressure from others. 
But he was not naive. He asked, how does it remain secret and who collects the ballots? He was aware of the machinations of men, the steps agents of darkness would take to further their agenda. The Pope's wishes allowed the bishops to express themselves freely. The majority of them responded no to each question. After gathering all the ballots and the views of the various Episcopal conferences, it was clear Rome had three options. One, she could close the door to every concession regarding communion in the hand. This is what a majority of the bishops wanted to do. The concern was, however, that there would be a violent reaction in places where the abuse already prevailed, disobedience and a rebellious uprising against the Pope, perhaps even causing a schism. Two, Rome could simply allow both forms of distribution on the tongue and in the hand, but the majority of bishops, not to mention the Pope, were strongly against this. The third option was the one that was taken. Now, it was a bit of a Hail Mary pass, the last chance to prevent communion in the hand from spreading further. The concession would be made, but not universally and not without conditions. It would only be allowed in places where the abuse had already started and was difficult to stop, and then only under very specific and limited circumstances. Even then, it would not be considered the normal, regular, or commonplace method of reception, and would certainly not be recommended or considered best by the church. A question has to be answered, because it's commonly asked. Why didn't Paul VI just do a Donald Trump and say, you're fired, to the dissident bishops? After all, he was the Pope, right? He's the boss, the chief, the big kahuna, what? And who, he says, goes. Well, yes. The Pope would have been well within his rights to fire the dissident bishops, to dismiss them from their positions as head of their diocese. But what good would that have done? Remember, hindsight is 2020. Perhaps Paul VI was holding out hope he could work with them, that persuading them was a more pastoral, a more Christian approach than simply dismissing them. Furthermore, the problem wasn't limited to the bishops. Their chanceries and parish priests supported this abuse. They were the ones actually carrying it out. If the Pope had fired a bishop, who would he have replaced him with? Would he have known who to replace him with? And what would that bishop have done with his brand new diocese filled with dissent? The laity need the sacraments and they need shepherds. Dismissing the bishops would have left a vacuum of confusion in the diocese, faithful Catholics deprived of leadership and pastoral care. This is not, of course, to say that Paul VI's actions or inactions were perfect, or that he shouldn't have been firmer or even decimated the ranks of the European Episcopate and installed hand-picked men from the papal household. He made his choices and they had their consequences. What is absolutely certain is that being hardline and decisive in that manner wasn't his style, nor really the style of church leadership during most of the 20th century. Preferred leadership styles have changed in politics, business, even in sports. And that has influenced the style of leadership in the church. In hindsight, perhaps the only thing that might have possibly worked was removing dissident bishops from positions of influence over dioceses and weathering the storm caused by the confusion of a leadership vacuum filled with inexperienced prelates. But even as we admit that, we have to admit there's no assurance that would have worked either. Communion in the hand would become, in a few short years, a much larger issue than simply an abuse in the countries in Europe who'd been the nexus of the Protestant revolt. The seeds would be blown across the Atlantic and take root in the New World, swiftly growing into a terrible weed that still threatens to choke the life from so many Catholics. There was perhaps nothing Paul VI could have done. Like I say, hindsight is 2020, and I'm not comfortable being a Monday morning quarterback. But what I am comfortable saying is that any charge Paul VI did not fight against communion in the hand, or worse, that he encouraged this dreadful abuse is not only inaccurate, but unfair and slanderous. Paul VI resisted it tooth and nail, 
Now, his tactics might not have been perfect. They certainly, ultimately, failed spectacularly. But he was not the quizzling many people make him out to be. His final attempt to fight community in the hand was tragically and ironically what has allowed this abuse to flourish. He fumbled his play and the ball got picked up by a hard-driving team of brutes, the United States bishops. But before we discuss the interception, my team and I need to tell you about the pass itself, a little document called Memorially Domini. Hey, six-pack warriors. Before you leave this episode, be sure to go to my show notes and click on the subscribe link. Just pick Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, whichever one you want to subscribe through. You don't have to subscribe to hear the show, but the more subscribers there are, the more these platforms will make the cantankerous Catholic known to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. The more reviews, the more the show gets shown to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And I thank you. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom has gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from Pope St. John Paul the Great. He said, Freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. There was once a rich miser who had a large chest almost filled with money. The miser hoped that someday it might be filled to the very top. So he put every bit of gold he could save into the chest. In order to make more money, he always worked on Sunday and didn't even bother going to church. He never once thought of using any of his money for himself, nor giving any away to his friends or helping people who were in need. One day the miser bought a monkey cheaply. He hoped to resell it for a high profit. This way he could make more money to hide in his chest. One afternoon the rich miser went for a walk. While he was gone, the monkey saw a kind neighbor toss a coin out of a window to a beggar down below. Now, monkeys like to do what they see others do. So he went to his master's chest, opened it, and began taking out one piece of money after another to throw it out the window. When people saw the gold coming from the rich miser's window, they came in crowds to pick it up. More and more people came. When the chest was almost empty, the rich miser came up the street. Seeing what was happening, he became angry. Oh, you wicked and foolish animal, he cried while shaking his fist at the monkey. Even the monkey's right, said one of the neighbors, because it's foolish to put your money away in a chest and never use it. God has punished you for working on Sundays. The miser lost what he'd worked so hard for working on Sundays. 
He cheated God, so God permitted him to lose what he thought he'd gain by not keeping the Lord's Day sacred. Cheating God is cheating yourself. The Mafia has an interesting and logical hierarchy. At the top of the food chain is the boss of the bosses. Then there's the territorial bosses. Next are the capos. Finally, you have the soldiers. The Sicilian Mafia is all but gone in America, but we have another kind of Mafia-like criminal organization. It's called the Lavender Mafia, and it has overwhelmingly infiltrated the USCCB. Because Chicago is the primatial sea in America, Cardinal Blaise Supich is the boss of the bosses. The territorial bosses are his fellow bishops who belong to the Lavender Mafia. Their capos are the diocesan chancellors and vicars. The foot soldiers are all those priests who agree with the criminal bishops, or they're too cowardly to courageously oppose the heresies and sins of the Lavender Mafia bishops. The Sicilian Mafia made all its ill-gotten wealth through strong-arming, lying, cheating, and stealing. The Lavender Mafia is no different, except they wear ecclesiastical robes that give them the appearance of legitimacy. Make no mistake, the Lavender Mafia is every bit as evil as the Sicilian Mafia. Through the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, they promote abortion, socialism, defunding the police, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, contraception, and illegal immigration. Worst of all, they do it with your money. They lie to you in never-ending appeals and strong-arm the money through parish taxes of the money you give the parish. They depend on your money. Well, you can fight back. Until our bishops begin doing as they ought, we shouldn't give them a dime. So I invite you to download Catholic Bogus Bucks. Catholic bogus bucks are intended to send a clear message to these criminal mafia-like bishops. They're great for wayward parish priests as well. Best of all, they're free to anyone who wants them. Try them out. This Sunday at collection time, assuming you're not happy with your parish priest, you know, the criminals who just haven't been promoted to bishop yet, Drop a Catholic bogus buck in the collection basket rather than your hard-earned money. Message received. And the next time your bishop sends an envelope, he's demanding that you fill with your hard-earned money to finance his criminal activity, fill it with Catholic bogus bucks instead. Catholic bogus bucks are easy to use. All you have to do is download the bucks and print all of them you want. They're free. Let me say that again, they're free. To get your bogus bucks, go to cantankerouscatholic.com slash evil-bishops. This has been the Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.